0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty, and this week I'm talking to Josie Rayner-Wells, who is National RSHE Advisor. Josie has had the most fantastically interesting career and set of experience working in this area. And we talk about the new guidance, how schools can effectively consult with parents, encourage pupil voice on these issues, and talk to staff about concerns that they have teaching, um, relationships, um, sex and health education. It is a really interesting conversation, but there's also some mega, mega practical strategies that you might want to use in your work at schools I am a particular fan now of the Ask It Basket and uh, some of you may have already heard of it, but if you haven't, I encourage you to um, listen listen to that bit. And yeah, I hope you you find it useful and take uh, Josie's suggestion that actually COVID and the opportunity to do some of this work remotely actually allows for more creativity and a bit more time and space for you um, to work as a school. So, as ever, just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello. Today, I am joined by Josie Rayner-Wells, who is a National RSHE Advisor. Hi, Josie. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a a little bit about yourself and, and your role?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I have an interesting and a really diverse employment background, But it's always circulated around education and particularly children and young people that are quite marginalised through their additional vulnerabilities. So many of these children and young people really, really benefit from the RSHE knowledge that they're taught in schools um, and the values and the skills that accompany that. So I've worked as a youth practitioner, I've worked as a pastoral lead in SMT of a rural secondary school, and I've also designed, delivered and evaluated programmes of RSHE for prisons and for children's homes, as well as more specialist programmes that have been commissioned by the European Social Fund and Learning and Skills Council, for example. And these have nearly always focused on neat children and young people, so lots of children and young people that have had involvement with yachts, for example, or have been leaving care, And then most recently, I've worked as a self-employed national RSHE advisor on a much more strategic level. So I've supported charities, local authorities and public health, as well as individual schools to really think about how they design, deliver and embed effective RSHE. And I've also been really um, excited to work on research programmes such as the Government Equalities Office funded the Learn Equality Live Equal programme which had a really clear aim of reducing homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic bullying. And I now work for Norfolk County Council as an RSHE and an inclusion advisor. So for them, I've written the widely acclaimed RSD solution resource and some accompanying toolkits that really take the headache out of preparing for the new statutory requirements. So for me, I think um, on reflection, it's really important to retain a balance of face-to-face work. Um, particularly when you're doing those more strategic approaches so that you always remain really relevant, realistic and impactful. And I think that's probably why I've got quite a varied background. But my passion is in really trying to use RSHE to make a difference to all children and young people, but particularly understanding its role in terms of addressing some of that vulnerability that our children can face today.
0: Wow that is um a very <laughs> wide and varied uh, career experience M- must have seen some fascinating um things and had some really interesting conversations in in that time um wow
1: yeah absolutely and i would just say when i worked in the prison i worked at a pilot prison with uh, male sex offenders and it really brought home to me the importance of the role of RSHE in terms of, um, it always felt like it was too little, too late in the prison setting, it's not that it doesn't make a difference, it's just that it really brought home to me the importance of doing this type of work, talking about some of these really tricky issues, not just the information, but like I said earlier, those kind of values and skills that we all need to navigate the world, and I think that that's um, really important and certainly something I've reflected on through many of my different roles.
0: And it must be interesting to think about obviously your your contribution to the to the individuals that you're that you're working with, but as you've demonstrated there with that sort of example from the prison, the impact on wider society of 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 people who, who, who don't have a good understanding of, of relationships and, and these kinds of things.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the new guidance and what it means but I won't try and quote it word for word, but there is a, a line in there where Damien Hines, he was the Education Secretary at the time it was ratified and published, talked about the subjects and their kind of really pivotal role in terms of children and young people being able to contribute in a meaningful way to society. And I think that, that's really important to remember, that this can make that very real difference.
0: So, yes, we we, we are going to be talking a little bit about um the, 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 the sort of changes Uh, to the guidance um, around um, RSHE and and why are these are these particular changes that have happened so significant? Yeah
1: significant is the word I think Hmm. so Damien Hines says in his four words and I'm going to quote this because I know this off pat and the reason for that is that it is absolutely instrumental as to why we have this guidance and why it's important and he's framed it really well he said today's children and young people are growing up in an increasingly complex world and they're living their lives seamlessly on and offline and this presents many positive and exciting opportunities but also challenges and risks and in this environment children and young people they need to know how to be safe and healthy and how to manage their academic personal and social lives in a positive way and i really like how he's phrased that i think it's really important to remember that this guidance is absolutely rooted in safeguarding. It's about making sure children are able to be safe, they're able to be healthy and happy so that they can um, fulfil their, their you know, lifelong outcomes, really. And the, the former SRE guidance, um, as we, we knew it, was written in 2000. So it was written 20 years ago. And the world's moved on at a really rapid pace in that time, particularly around technological advancements including the kind of accessibility of technology. And that, of course, has has an enormous impact on what children and young people are exposed to, what they're influenced by, and how they shape up their identities even. So the former guidance was feeling like it was was two decades out of date. It didn't really feel relevant anymore, and it certainly wasn't empowering schools and teachers to cover the content that they recognised their pupils really needed to be able to stay safe, happy, and healthy. So this is why the kind of new RSHE guidance become compulsory in all schools in England um, and it makes health um, education compulsory and I think that's really important to focus on. Lots of people pick out the S word out of the RSHE and focus on that because of its kind of more contentious nature, it feels a little bit more awkward, perhaps a bit more clumsy to approach, doesn't need to be, um, but it is important to remember the very real value of those wider relationships and health education uh, areas of the curriculum too.
0: Yeah, uh, honestly when you said 20 years ago, uh, I, I thought about um yeah, being in being in sixth form and getting a my Nokia phone that all I could do was play um snake on, which probably betrays my age and then thinking about the whole world of technology um that is out there at, at increasingly younger children's fingertips. Um it does feel like a, a, a you know a shift was was needed there very much so um and 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 as you say um interesting to think about the the totality of um education under this um and I think completely agree people always leap on sex and you know whatever bit of of curriculum they can put in a headline and say you know children of x years' age of age learning about this isn't that scandalous, and totally take the context um away from it and it's so unhelpful I think particularly for parents as well um, when the media does that.
1: Indeed yeah absolutely and we can talk about that in a little while if you like but before we do I just want to highlight So I think this is really helpful for us to bear in mind that the former guidance was called SRE and the sex word did come first mm. and that It's called RSE and that has a really purposeful kind of role in helping us to frame our thinking and it is that the relationships come first, it is that the teaching is weighted around the relationships and we teach the sex education in an age and stage appropriate way but we teach it within the context of relationships education and I think we have to keep that context in mind and that helps us to understand uh, the kind of position that the sex education is in
0: within that broader RSHE umbrella
1: just to stop us jumping on the F word
0: <laughs> <laughs> um and i i guess um for for schools thinking about about how they ad- address this then it does become a more um ho- holistic um piece of of kind of cur- curriculum um and and their rec- therefore requires a bit a bit more thought and and planning than, than previously would you say
1: yeah absolutely it's very important and the new guidance is really clear that it's a need to do and not a nice to do that consultation process and that's a consultation process really with all stakeholders so that's doing work with your staff that's doing work with parents that's doing work with pupils and triangulating that so that actually every step you take is very evidence-based and not personal opinion based and that's important because i'm going to draw our thinking back to that key message of it being about safe, happy and healthy children, we've absolutely got to make that difference and that impact, and we're not going to see that and achieve that. We won't be able to measure that, for example, if we haven't taken an evidence-based approach. And that's why there are some schools feel, and I understand completely why, that there's some unhelpful grey areas within the guidance, um, particularly around the LGBT elements and some other areas around curriculum design. So there is some core curriculum content included in the new guidance but it is for schools to make decisions locally in response to their identified need about what is the right age and stage to deliver some of that content and also the types of resources they might want to use, where they position it within their curriculum and that's absolutely right so that can feel like a challenge. But the reason those grey areas are there is to give schools some autonomy, to trust them with their professional expertise and to design something that meets the individual needs of their bespoke school communities. And that is really important in terms of achieving that very real impact on safeguarding health and happiness.
0: Yeah, um, can, we, can we dig a little bit more into that, that consultation process? Now, appreciate in terms of the, the timescales for this, some, some schools have been, have been doing some of this remotely, some schools will have already done it. Um, anybody who's, who's, who has concerns and, and wants to know more about sort of managing this process, do you have any advice or tips for them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would always encourage in a very age and stage appropriate way for schools to start with their pupils, because this is a curriculum for your pupils and you need to find out what they already know. And you need to find out what they'd like to know and that is absolutely your starting point if we don't do that what i often see schools do is deliver a curriculum that they are comfortable to deliver that they feel confident to deliver but actually we've got to start with our starting point of knowing what pupils need um and then we have to triangulate that like i said earlier with parents and again the the advantage of starting with pupils is that you have some sort of evidence base and some really good insight into pupils that you can then share with parents to help make the case for why your rshe curriculum is going to be delivered and, and the way it is and why you're going to cover some of the content or weight some of the content the way that you've decided to i think it's really important that we remember in terms of the formation of the guidance that key decisions on those subjects were informed by a really thorough engagement process and that did include a public call for evidence, and it had over 23,000 responses from parents, young people, schools, experts, and what have you. And this public consultation, where over 40,000 people contacted the Department for Education, so it did incite a really enormous response. And the depth and breadth of views expressed was really clear. And there are some very understandable and legitimate areas of contention. We can't brush over any of these, they really need to be addressed. So it's unlikely your pupils are going to find it as contentious as some of your other stakeholders. So do your pupil consultation. um, Do some work with your staff as well. And we can talk more about about the really important role of upskilling staff, teachers, to deliver this content because it is very different. But we need to move on um, to thinking about how we consult with parents. And the reason I say we need to move on to that is whenever I ask schools how ready they are, normally parental engagement is one of the things that they've left to the last because they're the, that's the bit they're most concerned about doing um, and it's very often because there's a real perceived um, concern that there's going to be some great parental or media backlash when they approach these subjects. So it is their greatest concern. I do a kind of worry wall activity when we were still in the moment of being able to deliver the, the lovely luxury of face-to-face training, which obviously during the Covid pandemic and at the moment we're not able to do so. But I start off with just a worry wall activity where I ask every teacher as they come into my training to stick on a post-it note, what what is their biggest concern about RSHE? And I ask that question to keep it as broad as possible, so they can respond with absolutely anything they like. And this is a great takeaway activity for anyone who's listening that wants to replicate something like this. And I can guarantee over 80%, so I work nationally, so it doesn't matter where I am in a country, doesn't matter the size of my group, I would say it's always over 80% of those responses that teachers share, and it's completely anonymous on my worry wall, are parental or media backlash. But we don't have 80% of our schools seeing or experiencing some great revolt from parents, some horrendous headline in their, their local or national newspaper. There are a few isolated incidents and we can't ignore those. But actually, the vast majority of parents have a really overwhelming support for the school to teach their RSHEs to their child. They really um, find that really helpful. But of course, we need to recognise that parents are the primary educators of their children and we need to really work with them. Often, parents really want to to support them to build on this learning at home, support them with some kind of tips and guidance on how to navigate what for some parents can feel quite a tricky, challenging discussion to have with their children as well. And I often kind of say to schools just just think about what your own experience of sex education was like at school. And normally it wasn't good enough, it was too scientific, it was very biological, it was very fact-based, not much around skills, not much around values. And so we have to recognise that as parents, um, we had a pretty raw deal of sex said, ed, relationships, education, if we even had any, um, and health education at school. So we don't have that really great kind of bank of experience to draw upon. For many people, their parents didn't really talk to them about it either. You know, I was one of those, I was a teenager in the 90s, so we used to have, um, I think it was called Ms Magazine. I mean, my friend used to get it once a once a fortnight and we rush down the park and we flipped to the back pages, where, I think it's a really cool position of the fortnight or something really horrific like that. And that, to be honest, was probably the basis of my sex education. And a very um, uncomfortable, sweaty biology teacher that was limping his way through the lesson because of his own awkwardness about it. And, of course, as a pupil um, or as a, a child of a teacher or a parent that's exhibiting that level of discomfort talking about it, what do you learn? Well, you learn this is something that people don't want to talk about and then you're not talking about it and then if you have a mental health problem or you've experienced abuse or something quite significant you don't necessarily feel that you've got those really important channels of communication open to you and you have adults available um, for you to go and talk to you might not have been taught the correct term you know it needs to become a part and parcel of our everyday language our everyday life in schools and I think that's really what the purpose of this guidance is around so it's about us working as schools to really embed that approach but also about us extending that out to parents so we need to consult with them in a really genuine way and we also need to be able to triangulate with them in a really genuine way um so that we're offering a really effective approach that feels comfortable as possible as, as comfortable as possible for everybody involved
0: yeah really um really useful um thoughts there i think particularly given that a schools have been in, in contact and in consultation I get I guess with parents a a lot more of, of late. Um, they're, they're, you know, it, it may be easier to have have some of that 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 conversation. It, it, it may also um on the other hand just fill people with dread of, of another <laughs> thing and some more some more Zoom calls and, and surveys <laughs> and things that they need to send out um, to parents. Um, but do you do you get a sense that um that parental consultation might be um you know a, a sticking point for a lot of people i remember seeing earlier this year teacher tap did a did a poll that found only thirty one percent of respondents felt well prepared um and only seven percent saying they felt very well prepared for the new curriculum do you do you, do you think something around parents might be what what's what's delaying it or what what do you think
1: Yeah I think you've really hit the nail on the head there and I think like I said earlier lots of schools because they're so anxious about parental engagement have left it as their final kind of action but actually that needs to happen earlier to inform some of the things around your curriculum design any resources you decide to invest in certainly in terms of informing your policy there's some really clear requirements in the guidance around parental engagement with the curriculum design resources and policy but actually actually, it's really hard to make the right amount of progress without that and I think that's why you're quite right lots of schools feel like they've become stuck in their progress I would say use Covid to your advantage in this case because actually if you are a school that's anxious Covid's almost done you a little bit of a favour because for once you've got an excuse to be able to do it from a distance so if you anticipate or you're not overly confident and that's entirely understandable lots of schools um, aren't feeling massively confident at the moment with this topic It does give you an opportunity to take some more creative approaches to consultation and to parental engagement, Um, moving away from perhaps that, that more traditional approach where you would stand at the front of an enormous assembly hall and the kind of view you have in your mind is a sea of angry parents with crossed arms ahead of you and you've got your PowerPoint presentation, you're just waiting for all those dreaded questions. Well, actually being able to do it from a distance is really great and you can provide a much broader kind of menu of options for parents to be able to consult with as well. So yeah, you can do surveys. Um, for some schools you can do things like narrate over PowerPoint and host that or email that out so parents can kind of absorb some of that information in their own time and space at a time that's right for them. And then you can have a QA surgery session for parents, or you know, they can they can post questions through um, something like slidy or just email them into the office and then you can do an FAQ response sheet there's loads of different ways and actually this is a really great time for doing a distance because you've absolutely got to but what I always find and this is almost an absolute rule is that when pa- when schools have um done their parental consultation work they always feel more empowered to start delivering the curriculum they always feel much more ready they always feel like parents trust them much much more. So I would say, be brave, do your parental consultation, you can't make progress until you've done it, and actually you can use pay to your advantage. So I've authored what's called the Effective Parental Engagement Toolkit, um, which has been recently updated to reflect some of these consultation strategies that are appropriate to the context of COVID. And they are really obviously uh, valuable for doing that at a distance. And the schools that have used them have already recognised how many more responses they've had from parents because it's so much more accessible to a much broader audience. And it is really important that we are able to engage with all of our parents so that we have a voice from a really broad spectrum of different types of parents as well. I also think it helps you control the pace of that parental engagement. So it's not a one hit wonder in your school hall. Actually, you can share the information then you can take the questions back. Then you can respond in your own time. You can look at it as a school team and think about what's a helpful response. You don't need to be thinking on your feet, feeling under pressure now. And I think that's really helpful. But absolutely, we've got to get on with parental engagement. It's really key. And I think parents want to feel valued. They want to feel heard and they want perhaps the space to um, share and have their concerns recognised and responded to. But the vast majority of parents really welcome schools doing this work and, and actually really like to kind of learn from schools some sort of top tips and strategies on how to approach what can be some of these difficult, challenging conversations for parents too to have with their children.
0: Really, really helpful there. And I think, as you say, um, from, a, from a parental perspective, yeah, you know, if they are dealing with these questions and they're caught on, on the hop, having having much more of a sense of, of how to feed into what's going on in the school can be can be really useful. And and also, as you say, that that sort of um getting everybody in, in the hall um you know could could, could be um could could make the, the, the school staff leading it feel less confident. And also um you know, parents in the audience might not want to ask questions. Or, or, or say things in front of a large group of people as well. You kind of see it from from both sides. as that not being the ideal forum? Um, and you know, um, as you say, uh, COVID is is making us think of all sorts of different ways um, to communicate with each other that you know we 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 wouldn't have done um, last year. So um, really, yeah, um, I, I like that. Turn it to turn it to your advantage. Um, <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> another group of of stakeholders uh, are governors. who who have something of an enhanced role around ensuring uh, the the kind of quality of provision. Could you maybe explain that in a bit more detail?
1: Yes, absolutely. And governors do have a really pivotal role to play. So as well as fulfilling their legal obligations, governing boards or management committees should also make sure that um, all pupils make progress in achieving the expected educational outcomes, that the subjects are well-led, they're effectively managed and well-planned, that the quality of provision is subject to regular and effective self-evaluation, that teaching is delivered in ways that's accessible to all pupils with SEND and that clear information is provided for parents on the subject content and the right to request that their child is withdrawn. And then finally, and I think this one's really important actually, is that the subjects are resourced, staffed and timetabled in a way that ensures the school can fulfil these legal obligations. And of course, if you're a foundation governor or a trustee of a faith academy trust, you've also got those wider responsibilities in relation to maintaining and developing the religious ethos in the schools. Now, I just want to say, because this topic can be quite personally emotive for people, this is a topic that people have very strong personal opinions about, much more so than they do things like maths, for example. And we have to be really clear, so I'm a governor, I'm a foundation governor in a junior school, um, I'm also their safeguarding governor i think it's really important that we hold uh, very tightly in our focus what the framework of our role as a governor is and that we are very mindful of that because we can be really well-meaning but sometimes it comes with the weight of our own personal opinion just because of the topic and i'm just putting that air of caution out there because I've had to support a number of schools that have experienced them um, challenging approaches by governors. So I think it's, and um, the governors have all been so well intended, and they haven't necessarily seen their own personal kind of influence coming in there. But those governors, um, I, I would say it's really great to have a link governor for RSHE. And that link governor can perhaps be the school equalities governor, or it might be the safeguarding governor, for example, the SEND governor. There's some really strong linkages there. Um, But it is about us understanding how we use our role to really support schools' practice. So that's why I think that one around um, the obligation to ensure that um, the school can fulfill its legal obligations so that it's well resourced and staffed and timetabled. Um, And I think it's really good to put for the new school year upcoming on the school, you might call your SIDP or your SIP, um, embedding effective RSHE. There's been such a focus on kind of ensuring compliance, even ticking the box through the new guidance is a huge ask. So getting to that point by the end of this academic year, absolutely great you will have had to have delivered for at least a term because all schools must start teaching by this summer no matter what, they've had that extended period of time. So we will have something to reflect on as governors. So asking for a monitoring report back that you can look at, but making sure it's on your school improvement plan in terms of embedding a really effective approach. Schools have had just the most enormous quantity of competing priorities. They do anyway, but COVID, as we all know, has just massively... Um, extended that repertoire so keeping it in focus for another year making sure you're reviewing what provision you put in place checking monitoring and checking its effectiveness its impact is is a really good role to play as a governor a really helpful constructive role
0: so so you suggest that um it would be good for somebody to have it as their their link focus and that the, the the whole um governing board um body should be aware of of, of what's going on potentially through the sort of school development um planning process as as well ideally
1: yeah absolutely and some of those wider health area um health education areas sorry are really brought into focus at the moment so particularly around things like mental health um and that's going to be on the agenda of every school governor at the moment so i think putting it on Uh, the SIP for next year, making sure that we are using assessments in school robustly and that we're we're kind of sharing that through headteachers reports, through monitoring reports. They're really good channels of communication so that governors can use their role as effectively as possible.
0: Great stuff. And um, are you, are there any lessons that you'd like to share from schools that you're supporting who are a bit kind of further along this journey
1: Yes. So the schools that um, I would say were really one step ahead come from a real kind of mixed bag in terms of their original provision. So I've supported several different groups of schools over the last couple of years. Some of them were turning their attention to RSHE the second it was mentioned because they knew that they didn't have anything in place um, and really wanted to put something in place. Other schools uh, were really good already and therefore wanted to build on that momentum. So it was two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum for schools that got out of the starting block very early. What I would say in my um, really considerable experience of working with schools around RSHE is every single school recognises there are improvements to be made in their curriculum. For the schools that have virtually nothing in place, they had all known that they wanted to have a much better offer for their pupils. They just hadn't felt like they had the government backing that we now have guidance or they didn't feel as though they were empowered to make that that real kind of quite challenging decision to talk about some of these topics sometimes. Only challenging because the nature of them is a little bit different to some of the other areas that we, we uh, work with in school in terms of our curriculum. So. Um, yeah I think it's about recognising there's always improvements to be made and I think that's the key message for all schools as they approach this. So even the schools that feel like they're ready, they are still in that cycle of continual reflection and review and embedding and ensuring that it is having the impact it's designed to do. The schools that I've worked with have all um, really enjoyed doing their people voice work as well um, and that's a really important step and i talked earlier on about that being one of the first steps but if you've actually taken a different direction and you've navigated your way through getting ready in a different order that's absolutely fine but that pupil voice work can be so insightful and it can always throw up surprises you know it always always does and you can do some really simple things so i use a stick pupil because it factors some distancing in, for example, and I ask pupils in table groups, no more than sort of four, to fix so they can all have a an input, draw a stick pupil to imagine a pupil of a year or two older than them, and just think about some of the issues and challenges that they might face. And they can write or draw, or if they're younger or they've got SEND needs, you can you can write or scribe that for them. Um, and then once they come up with all these different issues and challenges that they think think someone a little bit older than them might face then they draw a little heart and they start to think about the feelings that that person might have. And they draw a little speech bubble and they think about some of the thoughts and the things that that person might say. And then around the edge, a bit like a picture frame really, they write how that that pupil might behave because of those experiences, those thoughts, those feelings. Um, And that's really insightful. When you capture those in, it's very creative. Um, It's not like doing a survey or anything like that. So it's not that prescriptive framework. Often we have surveys and we survey our pupils. That's only one method and it's quite limiting because it's such a prescriptive framework. When you go for something a bit more creative like what I've just described, actually it's so open-ended that we can always find out more because we've, we've allowed that space. And that's really important to think about when you do people voice work is that you're not overly prescriptive with what you present in the first place. And the stick pupils are great once you've got them in. If you then look at them by year group, for example, or if you're a big, busy secondary school, you might go with year seven, year nine, and year 11 and take a kind of more cross-section. You can really track um, different trends and patterns in terms of what needs to be covered in the curriculum content. But what I like about that approach is RSHE is very much now, particularly not about just imparting information. We can't tell children what they need to know and that'd be good enough. Um, it's about imparting information, but also making sure that you are developing opportunities for values um, and also for those really important interpersonal skills. So children and young people can put that information into practice in the real world in a way that aligns their individual values and attitudes. And that sick people activity actually captures a lot of that. So it helps you really design your curriculum in terms of information, content and values and skills development too. There's lots of other ideas out there. We've designed at Norfolk County Council, for example, a a pupil consultation toolkit that's got loads of really age and stage appropriate approaches. And schools have sometimes held back from doing pupil voice work early on um, because they feel like they're not quite sure how to approach it in an age and stage appropriate way, particularly if they've not had much of a a RSHE programme before. They're a little bit worried about what they might unpick or where the conversations might lead, for example, what questions might be asked. But doing something self-containing, but not too prescriptive, like that sick pupil activity, works really, really well. And I'm a big fan of simple strategies. They're often the most effective and they often feel the safest as well.
0: And, and as you say, you get a kind of fascinating cross-section um, through through the school there by repeating that with um, different different year groups. Um, I was just wondering about, about staff and um you know, their own levels of, of kind of comfort or or knowledge in, in tackling these, particularly thinking about resources. I kind of think back to my own experience of school um, and a lot of videos and things that were kind of used and not really discussed in a lot of detail. Um, uh, and, you know, how, how you, um, as a leader in a school responsible for this area, might think about kind of working with your staff
1: yeah this is such an important area to highlight and discuss and, and you're right there's been various polls that i've had sight of and of course they all show varying data but the clear consistent message is that whilst the vast majority of teachers really recognize the importance of rshe the vast majority still don't actually feel ready to teach these subjects and we absolutely have got to recognize that that most teachers didn't enter the profession with teaching rshe is the key kind of decision to enter their career it wasn't that former driver so if they did a degree in math and they were a math specialist teacher they're going to very quickly recognize that you need really different strategies and for teaching rshe to make sure your classroom feels safe and effective for everybody most teachers haven't received any formal training to teach these subjects either so although no doubt many would have taken advantage of the kind of wealth of opportunities that's available to support with this now not every teacher in every school will of and I'm a really big fan of of prioritising training teachers. You can buy, there's some great resources out there now. Um, you know, we've authored one in Norfolk County Council called the RSE Solution. But actually, for any resource to be used effectively, the biggest resource really is the teacher and their skill, their confidence, their level of comfort. And you can only build that and develop that through training. It doesn't have to be training alone doing shadowing of different colleagues for example can be really helpful seeing how a different teacher picks up and uses a resource in a different way to you is really important but making sure there's some consistent strategies for teachers across your school so the basics of making sure every class has a working agreement every teacher's using biological language when talking about the private parts of the body there's always an ask it basket and there's always an opportunity for a a q a session at the end of every lesson that there's always some signposting to support um, at the end of every lesson so just making sure that some of those frameworks are consistent across um, all of the classrooms in your school is really important it helps teachers to know that everybody's taking that same approach and it helps pupils as well so always know as they kind of move through the year groups for example that actually this always feels familiar because of these things and it means that they can come in they can settle they can engage and their behaviour is much more consistent to having an effective lesson too but yeah I think we do have to recognise um, that complexity of teaching the subject compared to other subjects it's harder to plan for compared to a, a math lesson for example it's not so prescriptive to navigate your way through you don't know what questions children might ask so there is that you can't quite plan for um, and it's really important that we make sure all staff feel well equipped through training and that we build building opportunities to develop confidence, whether that's shadowing um, colleagues, whether that's having a series of meetings, so perhaps a half termly meeting as you start to um, teach using a new resource or you start to embed the new curriculum. If it's just the kind of opportunity for colleagues to come together, say what's working well, you know, what's challenging as well. I think another thing that's really empowering for teachers is you probably reviewed your school policy around RSHE uh probably be ratified by your governors as well of course it's for it's for teachers to have an opportunity to look at how that policy is translated into practice in the classroom so this is not the type of policy that needs to sit on two sides of a 4 paper and i know that lots of trusts and fan, um, uh, federations have that kind of rule but actually this is something that needs to be very robust teachers need to feel the policy's almost got their back if you like um, so i always say when you've got your new policy Um, Make sure you present that at a staff meeting, ask all of your teachers, you can do it like the worry wall that I was talking about earlier, what's your biggest fear in terms of what what might happen within the classroom environment, and then turn your attention to the policy, have a flick through the policy and think, how does the policy demonstrate or or guide me to respond in this situation? And that's a great way for schools to kind of try out their policy, and make sure that it's going to be effective. And it's also a great way for teachers to develop some understanding of the policy and practice, and to really see and feel how it empowers them in the classroom as well.
0: Love that. Super practical. I, I also really—I'm going to take away the phrases worry wall and ask it, <laughs> ask it basket. I love that's great.
1: <laughs> the thing that rhymes, yeah. An ask it basket is absolutely the way forward. And what's great about the ask it basket strategy? is that what I do with it, um, just to give that some context, is I give every child a talk card. And the talk cards, depending on their age and stage, they can can colour or design their own one, which of course um, means it's less anonymous, but sometimes they they don't always realise that. Um, But on the back of it, they have uh, three tick boxes, so they can write their question on it. And I ask every child either to write a question, to tell me something, or they can just draw me a smiley face. But everybody puts it in the ask it basket. And that means that if there's only one or two questions asked in that lesson, then actually that those people still remain entirely anonymous. On the back, there's kind of three little tick boxes. So it says answer in the class, Q&A, answer one-to-one, or I just wanted you to know that. So if they actually want to decide and have some control over how their question is responded to, that's really empowering for some pupils. It means they're much more likely to ask their question. When it goes in the ask it basket, for you as a teacher it means if you look at a question and you're really having that kind of blood-draining moment that nearly every teacher out there dreads where you're thinking I don't know how to answer this question, I don't know if I should answer this question, I don't even understand what word this child's used, I'm not sure that maybe they know something that I don't know, then actually it's a kind of great get out of jail free card because you can at it and go oh another smiley face and you just carry on without feeling like you've lost faith in front of your class And i think it's really important to have that mechanism in place and then at the end you can just acknowledge that there's some questions that you've not had a chance to answer but what you're going to do is you'll try and pick some of those up at the beginning of next lesson and it just gives you that little bit of breathing space to go away check the school policy ask the colleague um, and just really reassure yourselves it takes the pressure off of that class q a thing which i think is often the area teachers find the most stressful because it's the bit they can least plan for there are obviously some people out there that like to ask the odd tricky question just for the sake of it. But most questions, even those ones that feel a bit antagonistic, are really often underpinned by a, a genuine level of curiosity around the topic. So, I always have a rule which is you can't ask me personal questions and I won't ask you any personal questions. So, if there's a personal question asked, you know, how old were you when you first had sex miss that type of thing, then I can always say... Okay, so somebody's asked this question. I'm not going to answer that, but we can talk about this topic, you know. And so you can still respond to that question without that personal approach. I did work in one school where the teachers were so anxious. One teacher in particular was so, so anxious about answering the questions that we went for a completely different approach. So we used the ask it basket and uh, we took in the questions and we never answered them at the end of the lesson. What we did was we had a kind of working wall up in the in, in that classroom, or just outside the, the classroom door. I think it was actually in the corridor. They had it was a secondary school, and they had like a kind of PSHE type area of the school, so that was ideal. And they put the working wall up, and what they did was they typed up the questions, and then they typed up the answer, and they posted them on the working wall the following day. And I was a little bit this isn't going to be as good, but it's better than you feeling this anxious about it. But it actually worked brilliantly because what they said was they noticed lots of, A, they had the opportunity to go away and think about answering that question as fully and as robustly as what they felt was age and stage appropriate. They felt really empowered to do that because they worked with their colleagues to formulate the answers. Um, But also they said the pupils revisited that wall several times, so they didn't just have that one opportunity Mm. to hear that response. They added um, things like the child line posters, the school nurse poster, the thing you can talk to in our school if you've got any concerns or worries. And then they really extended it because it was working so well, and this was a great idea. They, um, in their staff room, they would share the topic that was coming up and they would ask staff, and if they wanted to, to contribute. So they gave them a sentence starter on a speech bubble, which was when I was this age and I was learning about whether oh, this topic was, the one thing I wished I'd known was, And they could put their name at the bottom, which most teachers did. And that really stimulated students to go and talk to that teacher about that topic as well with other questions. So it's a really nice way of opening up loads more channels of communication across the school community, which I thought was a really nice outcome from that. So don't worry about the questions. There's loads of really good ways to approach that.
0: Fantastic. I, yeah, I liked the sound of the ask it basket. And now I know more about it. I think it's absolutely (laughs) genius. Um, thank you for sharing that um and in, it's sort of i was just wondering obviously there's been um you know we've, there's recently been guidance around sort of teaching about other sensitive topics in school like um racism and some of the um ways ways in which the the, the government would would rather people um addressed that issue um, and, and and again we've said this is an area that the media like to get very interested in around schools um just just wondering what are your thoughts about um the kind of future issues or or, or trends and things that, that that schools may have to address in this area that they might be having to address before you know the next update of guidance kind of catches up
1: yeah really hard to know um what are likely to be those those directions of travel but we've certainly seen a real shift in terms of refocusing on some of those real issues and i say real because they are very real lived experience for lots of our children young people and i always encourage schools to think about the impact for their own staff parents and wider school community I'm a strong believer that every school should feel a really welcome, safe and inclusive space for everybody that is within it. And actually, if an area feels contentious, that's because that area needs to be spoken about the most. It shouldn't feel contentious. It should absolutely feel comfortable. And if it's feeling contentious, it's because you need to talk about it more. So we can't step back. We need to step forward with some of these challenges. It's a bit like going on the bear hump. Um, is how I describe it you can't go over it or round it or under it or anything like that you've absolutely got to find a way through it Um, and the guidance does say that in teaching about relationships education relationships and sex education that they need to make sure the needs of all pupils are appropriately met so that all pupils understand the importance of equality and respect and of course those Kind of skills, that interpersonal skill of respect is really broad and it can be applied if taught well to any element of difference or diversity. So we don't just need to teach about racism. I'm not saying we shouldn't teach explicitly about some of these topics, but it's important to remember the values, the skills are really transferable as well. Um, And the guidance goes on to talk about the fact that schools should ensure they comply with all the relevant provisions of the Equalities Act, that teaching sensitive and age appropriate in terms of the approach and the content. And it is clear that that age and stage appropriateness isn't a kind of uh, caveat for not teaching it for want of a better way to phrase that and it does go on to say that that schools should um teach it to all pupils um, and that it should be really fully integrated into their program of study into the curriculum and not delivered as a kind of standalone i remember being a secondary school pupil and it was almost like it was the gay lesson it was absolutely painful I hope we've moved a really long way away from that. This isn't something that is not something thats tick box this is something that absolutely should be a part and parcel of how we are as schools. So the guidance talks about schools being alive to issues such as everyday sexism, misogyny, homophobia, gender stereotypes, and they should take positive action to build a culture where they're not tolerated, but where we're able to identify and tackle them. And that all staff have a really important role to play in modelling these positive behaviours, So that's around our pastoral support, that's around our behaviour policy. And I think that's probably a fairly good note to end on. It's about thinking about the position of RSHE in your school, And this isn't just a curriculum that happens over here. This is about the way we are in our school. This is about how we use RSHE as a kind of channel to make sure that our schools are welcome, safe and inclusive spaces. This is about making sure our children feel safe, they feel healthy, they feel happy, that they're well-positioned to learn. And actually, that's never been more important than it is at the moment in the context of COVID.
0: You're so right. And I think um, it, it really linking to, you know, schools, schools, values, um, and, 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 and the work that they do with children on, on that is so important because in reality, you can't cover every eventuality or every scenario or situation that a young person might encounter in a complex and ever-changing world, but um, the sort of skills and, and values um, that, 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 that underpin how they, how they navigate those um does seem to be the, the the best place um to start to the to, to, to me as an observer um, so Josie, is there anything you'd like to say to our audience in closing
1: yeah absolutely so you've worked me out well already caroline so um there is we've covered a huge amount of content and then i also blocked already but there's always so much more to say about this topic and it's a really interesting it's a really exciting topic we talked about the importance of positioning it well and I just wanted to share, if that's okay, a quick strategy on how you can start to think about this. So it's really worth getting an RSHE working group together wherever you are on your journey of readiness for statutory RSHE. And that might include a member of SLT, a teacher, a parent, a pupil, um, if you're a faith school, your faith leader, for example, a link governor, um, and come together and do what I call a visioning activity. So, once you are aware of what you want to cover in your curriculum, think about the five differences you want this curriculum to make for your pupils. Now, that might be around having increased confidence or self-esteem to engage in all lessons across um, the board. It might be in terms of linking to safeguarding, um, to being able to be active citizens, whatever it is that you know you need your bespoke school community, you know the differences you need this to achieve for them. And then once you've done that, and that's really clear, and rank them in order so they'll all be important but the most important at the top and then come up with a vision statement for RSHE what do you want this to look like when it's working well and link that to your overall school vision statement think about your school values your school ethos really hook all of those keywords into it and that will really help to position RSHE at the kind of core at the heart of your school and it won't be this something extra that happens over here it won't be sex after sats so if you're a junior school anymore it won't be this kind of thing that you struggle to fit into the curriculum but it will really help you to not just centralize it in your curriculum but to really cement it into your school and that's where it needs to sit in terms of having some real impact for your children
0: and young people
1: and in terms of making sure your school feels that really welcome safe and inclusive
0: space for everybody Wow. Thank you so much for all those really practical tips you've given us today, Josie. Really appreciate that. And thank you for making the time to talk to us. Thank you very much for listening key voices is produced by the key giving education leaders the knowledge to act members of the key for school leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at the keysupport.com and please tell us what you think of the podcast rate review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at the keysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions